replicants are the future of the species. But I can only make so many. He's got every gun in the city. I've got you. We have to stop him. What do you want? I want to ask you some questions. How long you been here? What did I find? What was her name? How can you tell us something really happened? Tell me what you remember. Too many questions. Oh yeah, the Blade Runners are back. But not in exactly the way you might expect. Especially if your primary knowledge of the Blade Runner world is through Ridley Scott's 1982 film alone, and not necessarily through the work of novelist Philip K. Dick, on whose 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the original cinematic sci-fi classic is primarily based, and from which the new sequel borrows thematic elements. Not that the new film, from Sicario and Arrival director Denis Villeneuve, and producer this time around Ridley Scott, is one of those... Well, hell, if you came in late and aren't a diehard Blade Runner or Philip K. Dick disciple, then to screw you, the hell with you type of films. No, not at all. <laughs> that would certainly help when it comes to catching any number of inside references, stashed Easter eggs, and other nifty narrative and character implants. But for those who came in late, as it were, the new film, as was its predecessor, is a well-realized, standalone sci-fi detective yarn. And hell, even if you aren't specifically familiar with the Blade Runner universe, if you've seen some of the better among 20 or so adaptations of Dick's work for film and TV, and I'm pretty sure you have, then you have a fair idea of how the thematic and tonal land lay in this particular author's dark, paranoid, and often socio-politically and personally psychotic landscape where characters tiptoe through the minefield of identity, memory, and humanity, and how all are interconnected, if any of it is real at all, and not just some lie you've been told, or that you told to yourself. Huh? Uh, yeah. (laughs) If you don't know the original Blade Runner, but can recall Total Recall, Minority Report, A Scanner Darkly, or The Man in the High Castle, uh, these among some of the better uh, uh, adaptations of Dick's stories, then you'll probably have all the GPS you need to tour through this newest and arguably most impressive of Dick's darkly fascinating cinematic landscapes. Uh, though granted, in this world, the words memory and recall are relative terms. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get a little deep on this one. But if you didn't expect that, in a straight-up serious review examination of a sequel to Blade Runner then you tuned into the wrong place from the get-go. I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online, and welcome to the Movie Sneak's Quick Flicks Picks, our no-spoilers review and more of Blade Runner 2049, the best Philip K. Dick film adaptation from a story Philip K. Dick never wrote.
The world is built on a wall. It separates kind. Tell either side there's no wall, you bought a war. Or a slaughter. So what you saw didn't happen. Yes, ma'am. It is my job to keep order. That's what we do here. We keep order. You want it gone? Erase everything. I think Philip K. Dick is almost like the Charles Dickens of science fiction in his sheer density and, and detail. Nearly all his stuff comes from the real place, which is reality. What he sees is disintegration, dirt, corruption. And that was Phil. Phil looked on the dark side, seeing that the dark side was romantic. There was a romantic aspect to that dark element, those dark corners. Ridley Scott, from a 2011 interview, as director of the original Blade Runner and producer of Blade Runner 2049 and TV's The Man in the High Castle, he'd be the filmmaker currently with the most Philip K. Dick adaptations under his belt. He here reflecting on the ironic and iconic appeal of the late author's work. Words going around the campus that Blade Runner 2049 is one of the greatest sequels ever made. It might be. I'd personally say so. But in recommending the film to the average moviegoer, I might pull back on that a little bit and say it's damn sure one of the better ones of all time. And that's not only because I think the definition of what constitutes a good or bad sequel, or a sequel period, varies from person to person. Uh, For example, there are some equating Blade Runner 2049 with The Empire Strikes Back and Godfather Part 2. And while it's damn good, and while, yeah, absolutely, in some respects it does manage to outdo its predecessor, I think a more accurate analogy uh, to tuck under your arm while going into the film might be, say, Peter Himes 2010, The Year We Make Contact, uh, James Cameron's Aliens, or, and I didn't think of this one until a friend mentioned it uh, yesterday, Martin Scorsese's The Color of Money, all in the sense that, A, only, uh, as my grandmother used to say, a new kind of fool, not in his or her right mind, would attempt to do a follow-up to a film which over the years has gone beyond classic and even pop culture into the realm of cinematic myth, uh, damn near legend, as did Kubrick's 2001, Ridley Scott's Alien, and very much Robert Rodson's The Hustler. Uh, Therefore, the sequels to those three films, which came 16, 7, and 25 years after their respective originals, did the very wise thing, at least in my opinion, and not trying to duplicate those films, but to become a different kind of film, which takes its, and this is appropriate as Blade Runner deals with genetic engineering, uh, DNA from the originals. Whereas Empire and Godfather 2 are the same kind of film as their originals, actually part of the same body as the first Star Wars or the first Godfather, 2010 is less a philosophical Rorschach test than its Kubrick predecessor and more a linear emotional and spiritual adventure quest. Aliens is less a horror film uh, from Ridley Scott's original and more an action war suspense thriller. 
The Color of Money is less a social treatise and more a personal character study. And Blade Runner 2049? Well, it does one of the most daring things a film can do, something which most films today just don't, either out of studio fear or tendency to underestimate the intelligence of the audience. It functions on two levels. On one level, it's a straight-up science fiction detective story, even more a quintessential neo-noir, cyberpunk, heavy metal-esque exercise than was the original 1982 film. And if one chooses to view it simply as such, you'll enjoy it. At least I think you will. Though I also think that with a near three-hour running time, you might get a little antsy during the first two-thirds of the story. Uh, but if you come into it expecting something more like a multi-leveled novel, which peels back one character, narrative, and dirty word coming up here for some, philosophical layer at a time, I think you'll, as I, as I did, find the story becoming consistently more and more gripping and wounding itself tighter and tighter as it progresses. And in this regard, it has a little more luxury allowed to it than Ridley Scott's original film had back when it was first released in the summer of 1982. Director Denis Villeneuve uh, talks of his very first exposure to Ridley Scott's now seminal science fiction classic. At the time, uh, in the in the 80s, obviously there was uh, there were there was no internet. I mean, like like and I, I was coming, uh, I'm coming from a very uh, small town in Quebec. The news that we got at the time was from uh, uh, fanzine, you know, like Starlog or Fantastic Films, and uh, I still vividly remember going to the. Uh, I don't know, to newspaper store, you know, and having all those magazines and seeing uh, Harrison Ford, uh, I mean, Rick Deckard and Gaff in the spinner. And I still vividly remember the first time I saw that image and the emotion it created inside me, the, the, the excitement of uh, having the strong impression that it was something new that I haven't never seen before. The charmer's name was Gaff. I'd seen him around. The first one I saw and I was raised with is the original one with the voiceover, etc. You know, that was the movie I embraced at the beginning. And at the time, I didn't, I was not aware of all that. That Ridley was uh, frustrated about this version. I, I, uh, I thought that the voiceover gave the. At the time, I felt a kind of film noir element to the that feel felt uh, logic to the, the 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 mood of the movie. It was a very impressive experience to see that movie on the big screen for the first time. Oh, the summer of 1982. And no, that's not a Frankie Valley tune from Jersey Boys. <laughs> While there are those of an older generation who feel 1939 was the greatest year ever for film, and it was a killer one, uh, no doubt, with the releases of Gone with the Wind, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Wuthering Heights, and The Wizard of Oz, bona fide classics still just as popular today. There are those of another generation for whom the four months between May and September of 82 saw the releases of a slew of films which in their own way became seminal classics still watched and ripped off today. Among the films in that four-month lineup of 82 were E.T., Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, Poltergeist, Tron, Rocky III, Conan the Barbarian, The Secret of Nim, Firefox, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, An Officer and a Gentleman, The World According to Garp, Pink Floyd the Wall, and of course John Carpenter's The Thing, and Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, both of which opened on the same day. 
Friday, June 25th, 1982. Uh, unfortunately, unlike most of the other films on that list, The Thing and Blade Runner crashed and burned at the box office. In fact, both films exited the spotlight so quickly, I caught both of them together on a double bill on a Saturday afternoon a week after they opened. In time, of course, both would emerge as two of the best-remembered and copied films of not only that year, but of the entire era of the 1980s, both setting the standard for a whole new style of filmmaking, every bit as much as had earlier pop culture sensations like 2001, The Graduate, The Godfather, Love Story, French Connection, Shaft, Jaws, The Exorcist, Star Wars, and Alien, and film historians today like to say Blade Runner and The Thing were victims of a summer of niceness where the sentimentality of E.T. made the darkness of Blade Runner and The Thing unappealing to audiences. But I've always felt that was bullshit. I mean, Conan, An Officer and a Gentleman, and The Wall were all pretty dark too, and they did fine. Fact is, what killed Blade Runner and The Thing were the freaking critics. I mean, both films were slaughtered as being dark, ugly, cruel, nihilistic, and the big one of repeated often exercises in style over substance. And in the days before social media, in the days long before a site like Rotten Tomatoes would assign a rating vastly different than a rating uh, actually paying filmgoers themselves would assign a film, the reviews of critics carried a lot more weight than they do today. And it's proof of this. Uh, uh, check it out. When people, that aforementioned audience, finally did see Blade Runner and the thing on cable or on VHS or at a revival house or midnight screening, the audiences freaking loved them and made them the classics they are today. In the cold, very impersonal world of Blade Runner 2049, Ryan Gosling's KD9 3.7, affectionately known as Joe, is employed as a new era Blade Runner on the LAPD, hunting down earlier model Nexus series replicants which, or whom, depending on who you ask, are outlawed on Earth. In the intervening years since the climax of the original film, replicants, even the old Nexus series, have evolved, and some feel this evolution could pose a threat to humanity, while others believe it could prove to be just the miracle a dying world presently needs. In truest Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett-like fashion, a simple, everyday job Joe does at the beginning of the film leads him into a damn near Homerian odyssey replete with colorful, strange, and enigmatic characters, false identities, and a conspiracy which reaches from the mean streets to the upper echelon offices of corporate and political power. Like I said, very, very Chandler, very, very Hammett. Filmed 35 years after the first film, Blade Runner 2049 takes place 30 years after the events of that film. And as this is a no-spoilers review, we won't divulge any more than we just did, which is no more than you've already seen in the trailers and TV spots. And hell, you know, no spoilers or not, since some a-hole or two many years ago saw fit to ruin both Darth Vader's climactic claim at the end of The Empire Strikes Back and to give away what was lurking within John Hurt's chest at the dinner table in Alien... We've always found it much more enjoyable and preferable to enter a movie with as little knowledge of the plot as possible, period. And not just because of the spoilers aspect, but more because of expectation versus actuality. 
And that's an important thing that, that we're talking about here with Blade Runner 2049. And uh, not even building up a film to such a degree that, like, uh, with a blind date, it could never possibly live up to the well-meaning, if overblown, hype. But more like, I don't know, uh, for example, if you had never seen or heard of either film and someone explained to you the premises of both Robert Zemeckis' Back to the Future and Francis Ford Coppola's Peggy Sue Got Married, you might think, well, they sound like exactly the same film not realizing that the manner in which Back to the Future is tonally executed is much more comedic and kinetic action-oriented, while Peggy Sue is more laid-back, wistful, and at times heart-achingly nostalgic. Very, very different. So if you went into one or the other film and got a different kind of film than you were expecting, one's opinion of the film might be a very negative one, and not necessarily because the film itself was good or bad, but simply because it just wasn't what you expected. Now, bringing that back to Blade Runner 2049, as mentioned earlier, if one isn't that familiar with Philip K. Dick thematic territory, then yeah, you can enjoy the new film as a nifty, if long and moody, sci-fi mystery, uh, long and moody until at least the final 40 minutes when all action hell breaks loose. (laughs) But if you know Dick, no pun intended, I swear, and maybe have a little, I kid you not, religious or philosophical background, and this is where we get deep that I mentioned earlier, Uh, you'll find a lot more in the substrata of this fascinating as all hell film worth chewing on. For example, not trying to get all 70s cinema pretentious here, but hey, Blade Runner 2049 does really reek of 70s era filmmaking, uh, where there are numerous quiet spots where the visuals and sound and music uh, uh, take the front burner. And in this respect, big-time kudos to the score by Hans Zimmer and Benjamin Walfish. Uh, eh, capturing some of the tone of Vangela's original score and even interpolating uh, a few of the original themes and motifs, this score, to me at least, has a little more edge. It's less lyrical, less bluesy than the first score, and has a bit of that edge that you might get from John Carigliano's Altered States. Um, And as such, I know there are people out there who despise that score, um, but that's a score that I love. The atonal uh, uh, elements uh, are very much here in evidence in Zimmer and and Walfitch's score. Uh, But like I said, some people might not dig that, uh, just as some people might not dig the film. But like I was saying, uh, 70s style, the film leaves numerous quiet spots where the visuals and sound and music take the front burner in order to deliberately allow the audience, the individual viewer, to project their own inner crap, if you will, onto the proceedings. Uh, The film is also replete with 70s-era-like visual totems. Uh, For instance, if one is familiar with Buddhism, Yo, and this is where I was talking about that deep stuff. If you're uh, uh, those familiar with Buddhism, will recognize the tree under which Joe finds a bit of evidence as, "Hey, uh, that's a new version of the Bodhi tree," under which Buddha first achieved enlightenment—a revelation which would change his life forever, just as it does for Joe in the film. And if you grew up going to Sunday school every week like I did, you'll recognize the offer made to Harrison Ford's Deckard later in the film as a newfangled rendition of Christ being tempted by the devil. You know, the part where the devil says, hey, you don't have to die, you don't have to go to the cross, you don't have to suffer pain, all these kingdoms, all of this I'll give you if you just bow down and worship me. Now, keep in mind, 
Uh, the Blade Runner twenty forty nine isn't a literal adapt isn't a literal adaptation of a Philip K. Dick story. It's a sequel to an adaptation of a Philip K. Dick story, but in its examination of philosophical and religious iconography within the context of high tech intersecting with what it means to be human, the sequel in some respects becomes a more faithful adaptation of Dick's concepts and fascinating discussion points than was even the original film. But don't get me wrong, this isn't at all a dissing of the first film, or that thing with so many critics and audiences tend to do when a newer film comes along, uh, saying, yeah, they got it right this time, this is how you're supposed to do it. Because if the first film had not existed, keep in mind, if the first film hadn't taken the Crispus Attucks-like first hit, then the next film couldn't, wouldn't have had the luxury of hindsight. Uh, to, to be able to zero in more on what the first film maybe missed. Uh, as such people love to say, Rogue One was the film which The Force Awakens should have been, but wasn't. But The Force Awakens afforded Rogue One the hard-earned knowledge of what audiences would or wouldn't currently accept in a new Star Wars film. The same could be said for how Star Trek The Motion Picture became a roadmap of what wouldn't, wouldn't work for Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, uh, the same with the first Born movie with Matt Damon, and don't even get me started on that one, as opposed to the second and third film in the original trilogy. Uh, this is why I'm extremely hesitant to say, uh, as many critics are not, that Blade Runner, uh, sorry, Blade Runner 2049 is even better than the original. I think it has the luxury of being more faithful to the concepts and characters of Philip K. Dick's original novel, as well as those of his other stories but it never could have happened without Ridley Scott's, at the time, much maligned original film. I guess wrapping it up, understand that for most of his life, Philip K. Dick was a super intelligent, uncommonly perceptive, and high IQ'd individual who also happened to suffer from varying degrees of mental illness, among them schizophrenia and clinical depression, and who also, during the same time, fell prey to substance abuse at the height of the Timothy Leary Hunter S. Thompson, Hyde Ashbury, late 60s, early 1970s. As such, his intelligence, perception, and yeah, paranoia found creative release in over 40 novels and 100 plus short stories published between 1952 and his death in 1982, just a few months actually, shy of the release of the film Blade Runner, which was based on 1968's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, a film which would finally make him something of a household name in both popular literary and filmic circles. Released at the height of a political era when many came to feel, or realize, that Big Brother was perhaps commandeering more authority than originally allocated, the film Blade Runner was in many respects like the little Dutch boy who pulled the small stone from the dam and by extension triggered a counterculture deluge which continues today. Uh, Dick's recurring themes of uber surveillance on the populace were considered by some to be far-fetched and borderline psychotic when detailed in a scanner darkly. But years later, films like Enemy of the State would remove that far-fetched stigma. Uh, Do Androids Dream featured one of the first descriptions of what today we now call virtual reality. And the wild trans-temporal constancy, I always love that phrase, in stories like Minority Report and The Man in the High Castle would precede by decades the now common study of string theory and alternate parallel realities and universes running concurrent with our own. 
Uh, in the midst of this cosmic pinball machine, Dick's characters, like himself, would come to question the nature of memory, mind, and even the human soul and experience to the point of wondering what is the definition of a human mind and soul. And is memory or love uh, but a series of electrical impulses? Or do they signify something within and on a higher plane? The last mainstream film from a major studio which I personally feel nailed that patented Philip Dick conundrum was 2013's Oblivion, directed by Joseph Kaczynski and starring Tom Cruise and Morgan Freeman. Uh, at the time, I referred to it in a podcast review as perhaps the greatest Philip K. Dick story not written by Philip K. Dick. And I'd say that crowd now goes to Blade Runner 2049. If you go in expecting a straight-ahead sci-fi action adventure, or even a close approximation of the first film, you may come out sorely disappointed, maybe even pissed. But if you set aside preconceived expectations and mind shift, tap into that which made Dick's stories so fascinating when they were first written, and even more so now, then I think you two may emerge from the theater, just as I did, saying quietly to yourself, Damn, that was really, really effing intense. Like, as in any Philip K. Dick story, it's all about point of view and perception. I'm Craig Jamison, and thanks for joining me with our movie sneak, Quick Flicks Picks. See you next time, up in those cheap seats. He's constructing an army. Tell me what you remember. Everything. They know you're here. He's on your tail. I'm coming with you. What's the plan? We don't run. You do not know what pain is yet. You will learn. Rights to all film, television, music, and other audio clips are the property of the copyright owners and used here for educational and criticism purposes only. 